So with that said, I want to move into a new topic this morning, not a new topic uh, in the general sense, but in the specific sense. As you know, for 12 or 13 weeks, we've been talking about prayer. And some of you are ready for me to quit talking about prayer and move on to something else. If you fall into that camp, get your life in order, because we're going to keep talking about prayer. I believe with all my heart, the most important thing that can happen in the church today is that we renew our vision for prayer. That we renew our grasp of the importance and the significance of prayer as an integral part of the church life, of our individual Christian life, and of what we will be able to accomplish for the kingdom in the days ahead. We want to talk about seeing the power of God. It's not coming without a foundation of prayer. We want to talk about hearing the voice of God. It won't be clear without a foundation of prayer. We want to talk about moving in the wisdom of God. We're not going to have it without a foundation of prayer. As you already know, I'm confident that prayer is more than saying, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. It's more than a ritualistic statement of some words that we say right before we go to bed or just before we eat. Bless this food, because I'm hungry. Amen. It's more than that. You know, my dad used to say, say joke around with us that the prayer was good food, good meat, good Lord, let's eat. Okay? We lighten it. And we can joke about it, don't get me wrong. We can have fun with it. But we've got to move from a place where prayer becomes something that its focus of it is a routine ritual or lighthearted idea to a place where it is real, living communication with our Father. Around the world, the most common ritual of prayer that is practiced, if you had to guess, what would it be? It's probably not now lay me down to sleep or the food prayer. I can't even remember that prayer we pray over food right now for some reason. Uh, the little kid's prayer for food. What is it? God is great, God is good. That's it. God is great, God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. Those two are probably not the most ritualistic prayers around the world. Which one do we hear over and over again throughout the world? The Lord's Prayer, which really, by the way, isn't the Lord's Prayer. It's a model prayer. Or maybe the disciples' prayer. It was Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray, not giving them a model for prayer. But you know what we've done with it? Around the world, you ask people to pray, and I'll bet you 50% of the people will say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's all they know. Around the world, probably 50% of those who call themselves Christians don't know how to pray any more than to say a ritual of prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. We used to say it before football games and stuff too, and everybody in the stands would say it. Now, now hear me, that's not bad. I'd, I'd be happy if we could just go back to as school parents and children saying that prayer together before football games again. I'd be happy compared to what we have now. But I'd be happier 
if we understood what it meant and what it was speaking into our lives. So we're going to begin a series this morning to look at this prayer, this form of prayer called the Lord's Prayer, and see what we can do to glean out of it some understanding of how to improve our prayer life. So how long could we possibly talk about the Lord's Prayer? Probably a sermon or two, right? It's a pretty short prayer. I think we have nine or ten weeks we're going to spend on the Lord's Prayer. Why? Because we don't understand the treasure that was in the words that Jesus gave to his disciples. We don't understand what he was trying to declare to them and say to them about prayer. We have so long thought of it as a prayer that we've forgotten what it teaches us about prayer. If we ever knew. If we ever even examined it to try and find out. So let's think about it this morning. Let's look, if you will, in Mark, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 6. The Lord's Prayer is found in Matthew and in Luke. Mark seems to indicate that he was aware of it by quoting some of the principles of it. So we find at least a semblance of the Lord's Prayer in three of the four Gospels. We're going to use as our base the Matthew version, it's the longer, more extensive version of the Lord's Prayer. For some of you, the translations you have, you won't notice hardly any difference at all between the version in Luke and the version in Matthew. But if you look to original language, what you'll find is that Luke wrote much more uh, to a Gentile audience, while Matthew wrote much more to a Hebrew or a Jewish audience. And in doing that, Luke changed some things about how the way he wrote it, uh, and we don't see that oftentimes in our translation, the core being the same. But he left out a few words that might have been confusing to a Gentile population. So we're being Gentiles, uh, but also those who uh, understand the power of the Messianic uh, nature of Christ. We're going to look at the Hebrew or the Jewish version of the prayer and see the depth of it a little more than what Luke conveyed. So let's look. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's consider this prayer step by step. Maybe in ways we haven't even thought about it before. So I'm going to break it down really simply. And this morning, we're probably going to get no further than our Father. Our Father. You ever think about that? We pray that prayer a lot of times, but do you ever really think about what you opened up saying? Our Father. There's a lot of power in those words. There's a lot of significance in those words. It's not just an opening. See, we do it a little different way because we've even lost the understanding of how you open a prayer up. How many times do we begin our prayers as modern-day believers with our Father. 
we tend to begin, most, a lot of people I know tend to begin with, Dear Lord. And already there's a drifting from the understanding of what God was speaking through Jesus about how to address him and come before him. Not saying it's wrong. Don't, don't, don't hear me wrong now. Not saying it's wrong to say, Dear Lord or Heavenly Father, or something like that as we open up our prayer life. But we need, we don't have to open up with any particular ritual of how we open up prayer, but we do have to know who we're talking to. We need to know who we're talking to. He is our Father. That means He wants to do some really good things for us. He wants to pour out into our lives, but He also wants to protect us and preserve us, and do what's best for us. Let's begin by just looking at our. Can, we, can, can you break our Father down even further? To just our. Just one word. Let's start there, then we'll add it into Father as we move further. But think about it for a minute, what it means to begin this prayer with the word our. You understand something? God is not just monopolized by you individually he is our father he has a lot of children he has a lot of creation he's a busy god but he loves you personally he listens to you individually. Some of you had big families growing up. You know, I, I, I grew up in a family that were four, four kids, two in my immediate home, two kids. Uh, so it's a little bit smaller. But generations back, I've been doing some genealogy and some genealogical research and stuff. And it doesn't take many generations back to get to the point where my ancestors typically had 8 to 12 kids in the family. My, my one generation back in my, my uh, um, Lisa's family and her dad and her mom had large groups of kids in the families. We've got four in my family. Lisa had four, three brothers and sisters in her family. And when you would go to dad with a bigger family, he was everybody's dad. Not just one of the kids. Everybody's. But do you understand something? In those big families, when you were talking to him, and he was everybody's dad, and you had that quiet, private, one-on-one time with dad, he became your father. Caring about where you were. Yes, it's a big family, but caring about where you were. What was going on in your life? Now, I recognize there's some of you that had less um, godly childhoods. And I understand that. I'm speaking generically to the idea of what a family's supposed to look like to reflect our Father God. A father who may have 8 or 10 or 12 kids but can stop and listen to one. That's who we're talking to. Somebody who's willing to take the time for one child, though he has many. He's our father. 
And because of that, we need to understand that Jesus recognized that though we didn't have a monopoly on God, that he was all of our father, he was all of our father, but but we didn't have a monopoly on him, but he cared about the one. He also recognized and told us in other places that there were issues with the folks who didn't understand who he was, even though he was still dad. Jesus talked to the Pharisees one time. In the midst of, well, actually he talked to the Pharisees a bunch of times, but on one of those occasions, he spoke to the Pharisees, and he he said something interesting because he told the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Okay? In John 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 42 through 45, Jesus says to the Pharisees, if God were your father... You would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you were not able to listen to my word. You were of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is the liar and the father of it. And Jesus said to these religious men, you're of your father, the devil. Now, the church... The synagogue of the day thought these were the most important spiritual folks on earth, Pharisees. Jesus said, wait a minute, you don't understand your relationship with God. Is it any wonder he was teaching the disciples to pray, our Father, mine, ours, not the enemy, not the devil, not the father of lies, but God in heaven, you are our Father. I understand who you are. My life has changed. I'm no longer of my father, the devil. I am of a new created being. I am of a new DNA. Our father. Now you understand, God in one sense is the father of all. He is the creator of everything. He's the father of everything that exists because he created it. But when it comes to addressing him and communicating with him, there is a distinction between those of you and I who are Christians, in the real sense of that word, who have accepted Jesus as our Savior, who have looked to him and said, my life is a mess, I can't do it, I need you to change me. I recognize you gave up your son so my life could be restored to relationship with you. Those of us who are truly Christians, when we address God, we call him our father, not because he generally created us, but because he really is ours. You see, in that broad sense of him being father because he created us, he looks after all of us. You do realize that he cares for the just and the unjust alike. That's why oxygen absorbs into the bloodstream of a Christian and a non-Christian. 
That's why sunlight warms the body of a believer and a non-believer. That's why rain grows the crops of those who love God and those who hate Him. Because He still is the creator of everything and everybody. He loves the whole world. Simple passage, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the whole world, that He gave. He gave so you and I could call Him our Father, not just our Creator. He's ours. But think about it. Matthew chapter 5 Verse 43, beginning there, it talks about this idea about the just and the unjust and how God looks upon uh, those whom he has created. Matthew five forty-three. you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those that hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I don't know about you, but before I go any further, let me just say that I'm going to come back to that statement, and that's tough. But if he's our father, I'm going to get back to this in just a minute. If he really is our father, we better be listening to that passage of Scripture. We have a responsibility to the folks around us, whether they're just or unjust. It's not based on how they treat us. It's not based on how we feel about them. It's not based upon what they say to us. It's not based upon the way they look. It's based upon God loves them, and if he is our, my father, then I have a responsibility to them too. If God can love the just and the unjust alike, then I have some accountability to the same thing. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Think about that. Love your enemy, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That. In other words, so the final thing I'm about to say can be accomplished, do these things I've just talked about. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those that love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. When you pray, our Father, and you call him my or our, do you realize what that means? It means to become his son, you prefer one another in the church, and you love those who are not part of it yet. Loving those who persecute us, do evil to us, don't like us, talk about us, whatever way you want to look at it. Changes our prayer life with just that word, our. Do we really know how to relate to the believer and to the non-believer? Because God loved the whole world. If we're going to be his children, his sons, if we're going to be able to call him our father, we got to know how to relate to the whole world. We've got to be able to display it.
He gives those life-giving elements to the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. How many times have we grown frustrated with those that we saw that we felt were not following God? Instead of looking at them like Jesus did, recognizing our Father is saying, display my love so that they may know me. Our Father. That second word is just as important as the first one. As we recognize him as our I do. Well, let me make one more point about that. As we recognize him as our, he gave rain and sun and such to the just and the unjust. That does not mean there's not a distinction between you and the sinner. I want you to understand this. When you call him our father, the love you give to the person who's lost or in disobedience to God is an obligation you have to God. When you give that love to them, you're fulfilling a responsibility to man and an obligation to God. But that does not mean that you are treated by God the same for eternity. That's one of the reasons we need to have a heart for those who don't understand Him and know Him. Because Acts 24, verse 15 and 16, 15 in particular says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Here's the key. The results of that resurrection are different. No matter what your theology, no matter what your background, the results of that resurrection are different. There is a challenge presented to the unjust at that day of resurrection that you don't have because He is our Father. There is a distinction there because He is your Father that we need to understand, that we need to recognize that We need to realize why we care about the lost. You know, I told you before, I've heard people say, uh, Lord Jesus, come quick, get us out of here. Let the rapture happen. Things are getting rough. Things are getting bad. If you really understand that he is your father, it's going to change the way you pray to be saying, Lord Jesus, give me one more day so that the just and the unjust upon whom you have given life will have chance to be the just and the unjust upon who you pour out resurrection and that I'll get one more person into the category of the just. Give me one more chance to bring somebody into the kingdom now, on the earth, in this life, to touch them before you come back. Now, moving on to the term father, He's not only ours, but He is Father. And by Father, when we relate to Him, we understand Scripture addresses the idea that He is a Master. He is Lord. He is many, many things. But here in this model prayer, Jesus said, call Him Father. The Hebrew culture, the mindset of a Jew... 
The father was the most important figure in the household. They recognized their fathers, not only fathers of the individual home, but fathers. Our father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Fathers of the faith. Fathers who had raised up generations. Fathers like Elijah, who was able to impart a double portion into his son, Elisha. Fathers like Abraham, who became a foundation and built a covenant with God, establishing our faith. Fathers like Jacob, whose name was changed to make him a great nation, Israel. And fathers like the man in an individual household who was due of honor, respect. The father who was affectionate, loving, and kind to his children. But who was also strong and willing to give discipline where it was needed. You see, we need to understand that that Jewish mindset of a father doesn't matter what your background with your father was. I understand we have different relationships with our natural families. So when Jesus said, our father, he wasn't relating to exactly what you might be seeing in your natural family today. He was relating to what did it mean to be a father in a Hebrew culture. And that father loved and disciplined. So we look at God as being a father that our culture has taught us a father should be. Let me just be honest with you. Our culture says a father never should do anything to disappoint a child. Our culture today says a father should do everything a child wants. Our culture today says... You certainly don't discipline a child because you might hurt their self-esteem. Our culture today says a father should bend to the will of the child. A few years ago, there was a big push about children's rights. The human rights of children. Let me tell you a secret. Children have rights. The right to be taught to love God by their family. And for it to be done correctly. But this modern culture and mindset of fathers and mothers bending their will to the children's will, changing their mindset from a spiritual, biblical guide to a cultural, contemporary day guide is wrong. And so when Jesus says, our father, he looks at a culture that valued the natural father, and he said, this is the way you can relate to God. He loves you. He wants to give good gifts to you. Do you remember that the word of God also declares the times when he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, He won't ask for an egg and you give him a a scorpion. He's not going to ask for for something good and you give him a serpent. 
You give good gifts to your children. If you being evil, not even understanding the whole concept of what good is, can give good things to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things? God wants to give good things to His people. Do you understand that God desires to pour out awesome things for you because He's your Father? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. He wants you to experience it. But guess what? He's not afraid to keep you in order. And when we pray to Him as our Father, we need to remember that He desires good things for us, but He is not going to hold back from correcting us, disciplining us, and keeping us on track to be a success in kingdom life. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Do you see how much we can learn simply from that term father in the Lord's prayer? He's a dad, and he looks at me, and he wants good things for me. But if I'm a kid, and what I want is to stick my finger in the light socket, he doesn't want that for me, because even though I think it might be fun, he knows it's not good for me. And so when he disciplines me, or, or whacks my hand with the ruler, or speaks hard to me so that I jump, That was not a bad thing. It was a good thing. Because while I may have thought it was fun, he saw that it would bring death. And by correcting me, he didn't cause me to lose something. He caused me to gain something. The Heavenly Father, our Father in Heaven... He sees things we don't understand. He knows the things that we ask for that are going to be destructive to us. And when He doesn't answer us the way we expected Him to, how can we, being mature as adults, and knowing how we handle our children in the natural, knowing that we do things they don't want and they don't like because it will bring benefit to their life down the road, how can we then say to God, God, you don't love me because you didn't do this? Do we really understand what it means when it says He's our Father? He loves you too much to give you an answer to prayer that will be harmful to you. And he sees more than I do. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the end result from the start. And what that means is what I think is good, he already knows will it be good or not. I don't always have that luxury with my kids. And yet I still feel the need to discipline or correct at times. Or say no at times. God knows How much better is he as a father able to say no and it still be loving and it still be kind? 
Do we really understand that concept? How many times have we asked for what we wanted and then dishonored God because it didn't come to place the way we thought it should or the way we wanted it to? That's a misunderstanding of who we're talking to. We don't understand he's our father. Matthew, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 says that a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Now, if you understand that passage, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you go back and you finish reading Malachi 1, and what you're going to find out is the Lord answers their question. When they said, in what way have you despised, we despised your name? Hey, we're just doing our job. We had not despised you. We bring the offerings in. We give our sacrifices. We do the stuff we're supposed to. And God looks upon them and he says, wait a minute. You give me your second best and then you still want to call me father. He says, what do you mean second best? What were they doing? If you go on to read that passage, what you're going to find is that instead of giving their best, they offered defiled food on the altar, basically stuff that was moldy, okay? Or stuff that man wouldn't eat. They'd reached the point they thought, well, God's not eating it, so we can give him whatever. We can keep the better stuff for us. And when it come time, came time to give their sacrifices, to make their sacrifices, they found blind and lame cattle, sheep, goats, doves, etc. And they offered them because they thought, well, you know, what's God going to do with them? We'll keep the good stuff to breed better things. Do you realize that when we call God Father, if we understand his fatherhood correctly, then we have an obligation to give him our best. To honor him with our best. How many times do we pray and we end up with something more or less like, God, if you'll just get me out of this, then I'll do something good for you. Now, just get me out of this and I'll go to Africa as a missionary for the rest of my life. Of course, then we talk our way out of it when he gets us out of the situation. Some of you as kids prayed that prayer, and you need the curse to be broken over you from committing to God something that you now won't do. I'm serious. It's funny, but I'm serious. God takes us at our word because he's our dad. He's Papa. See, that word father is more than just a formal word. He's not just father, he's daddy. He's Abba, father. He's papa. He believes you. He sees the best in you. He wants the best for you and he sees the best in you and he expects you to give your best. How many of you growing up in whatever you may have been good at, let's just say, it was the soapbox derby. And you sat with your dad. 
and built the little soapbox car or the the little uh, soapbox when the, the big ones I use more areas are down here they do the uh, uh, the ones where they carve the little bitty cars and run them down the tracks and things you you carved your little car you built your soapbox car how many of you ever had a situation where you did something like that what pick out whatever it was whatever you enjoyed whatever you were good at as a child and if you had a good family life how many of you ever expected that your dad was going to say, all right now, we're going we're to give this what we've got because we want to come in second. I want you to do an okay job at this so that you can reach second or third in the competition. I don't know about you, but that's not the way I grew up. I mean, I understand you may, may be a, a poor, or poor family life can result in an attitude like that, but... You know, even in most of the poor families, the, 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 the struggle, struggling families, the, the bad family situations I know, I don't know many dads who want their kids to do second best. I guess by implication, some absentee homes. There's that implication. But there's usually somebody there still wanting the kid to do better. Do their best. That's how God looks at you. He wants your best. And when we pray, we need to be considering those ideas that He is Father and He wants your best. Your DNA changed. 1 John 3 9 says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin. You change, you give your best because God's seed remains in Him and He cannot sin. Because he has been born of God. Now, let me just be blunt with you. Those of you who are guests just have to live with me because I'm blunt most of the time. When this passage, we say it real polite in King James and New King James, it says, those who are born of God uh, don't sin because his seed remains in you. Let's just be straightforward. It says, those of you who are born of God don't sin because his sperm is still in you. His DNA is in you. That's the word. The the Greek word there is sperma. The sperma of God is in you. He is recreating you. We're born into the earth with a spirit man that's, that's crippled by our soulish, sinful nature. And God comes into our life, and when we say we're born again, we don't realize how powerful that statement is. We are literally born new in the spirit to a new dad. And his DNA remains in us. That's why I got no problem with the doctrinal position that once I'm saved, I'm always saved. My real question is, was I reborn? Was I saved? That's why the scripture can also teach that I have to work my salvation out daily with fear and trembling. If the seed of God is in me, If the sperma of God is in me, if his DNA has wrapped itself around my life, I am different. And when I pray to him, I pray to him as his son. And a son knows that the father loves him with the good that comes and what he doesn't perceive is good. And the son knows that he gives his best to the father. And the son knows that no matter what happens, 
He's going to love me. That's who we're praying to. That's the God who loves us. And oh my goodness, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, 45 minutes of message, and we got through two words. Do you realize how deep the Word of God is? Do you realize how significant it is? If we want to learn about prayer, do you realize what we can learn from just this one passage where Jesus says, hey, think about it this way. That's basically what he says. Think about prayer in this way. Let it be stirred up in in you like this. He never intended for us to stand in a football stadium, bow our heads, and declare, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Doesn't make it a bad thing, but that wasn't his intention. His intention was that he would convey to his disciples, He's personally your Father. And when you come before Him, know He's yours and know who He is before you ever start asking Him for anything. Father, we acknowledge You today as God. And more than that, we acknowledge You today as our Father. You're not a distant God. You're a holy God. One who loves us, cares for us. One who desires to give us good things, but doesn't hesitate to discipline us and keep us on track. God, we thank you that you're real. We thank you that you're a dad to us. Would you reveal yourself now to each one in this place as Father, as their Father, in the name of Jesus.